Listener Production. Welcome back to State Crime Command, the official podcast of the New South Wales Police Force. This is part two of Lost at Sea, The Black Bone. I'm Adam Shand. The mysterious jawbone found on Yamina Beach is holding on to its secrets. Forensic analysis suggests this individual was 15 years old when he died. The challenge for this investigation is to establish with reasonable certainty when he died and to link this to an event which might include a missing persons report from within the last 10 years. Our team of forensic investigators is attacking the problem from several angles, including DNA, dental records, landscape analysis and archive searching, a process that could take several months. In the meantime, we're following up our theories of how the bone came to be on the beach and testing the assumptions. If you can help, please get in touch with Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000 or visit your local police station. We need your help. As you'll hear, the release of part one of our investigation brings a vital source of information and a change of thinking. So we may well have uncovered a bit of sand off the top of it and that's why it was found, or we may well have pushed it to a place that it was found. So. I'm now here at Yumina Beach. After a COVID-enforced distance from this story, we've got the film and TV crew from New South Wales Police coming up on Thursday, plus the head of the Missing Persons Registry, Glenn Brown, and we'll try to put it all together. I'm just hoping that we can now pursue a couple of these leads. First off, that the jawbone might have been brought in a load of sand from Brisbane water and dumped on the beach, as happens, and also that we might be able to follow up the jawbones dentistry there that Phil Kendall identified as having two teeth removed, possibly four, in about 2006. That is, if our dating's right. When the jawbone was found, according to Dr Kendall, it's not a massive number of people in 2006 or 2007, but a very specific cohort, people of disadvantaged background, his theory is that the jawbone came from a, an Indigenous person. Of course, there are Caucasian markers as well. That's the current thinking, that it's mixed. Of course, the DNA phenotyping is taking place right now, which will give us some more clues, including eye and hair colour, and that may indeed lead to some further interest. But the, the key thing here is, that, of course, why wouldn't someone report their teenager missing? A teenage boy under under 15 goes missing in this area and nobody reports him. That's the key thing for me. You shouldn't immediately say, well, it must be a murder, it must be foul play, because it could well be that it came from a conventional burial. It's going to be a bit of a long slog, but I'm full of hope as always. The assumption so far is that this case was a local event, a Central Coast child lost whose remains ended up in the river and were then somehow transported to the beach. I'm meeting with the officer in charge, Detective Senior Constable Rod Debra at Gosford Police Station. This briefing is just before the release of part one of the podcast. Meeting Rod for the first time in person, it feels like this investigation is gathering speed. 
The detective has requested Health New South Wales scour dental records in this region of New South Wales for possible matches to Dr Kendall's post-mortem x-rays of the jawbone. So look on Dr Kendall's recommendation with the information he gave us from his odontological examination, in particular the dental procedures that he's discussed in his report there, um, made contact with Gosford Hospital to uh, medical records people there just uh, outlining what we have and in particular looking for this type of procedure. As Dr Kendall indicated, it's likely something that would have been done under general anaesthetic and quite possibly in a hospital. So gone through the medical records there. They've put me onto their dental clinic and I need to just forward them some further information so they can narrow down their search parameters to see what they can find. What they sort of need is a list of names of potential possible people. So go through that and find out males that fit that age category. It seems like there's still, a, there's no record finder here. There's no way to whittle it down. It is one of those things that's very hard. Unlike DNA with dental records, there's no sort of like national database or, so um, you have to really have an idea of where you're looking first, you know, as to what dentist, what health area that sort of thing to be able to go through dental records and that's a problem that's been identified before. The second line of inquiry is the colour of the bone and what it tells of its long-time resting place. We're testing the theory that the bone came to the beach from the estuary, Brisbane Water, as part of dredging operations. Forensic archaeologist Dr Penny McArdle said we should be looking for any dark sediments where these remains may have been disturbed. What Penny did say was that whatever's permeated the jawbone to turn it that colour, there's a good chance a geomorphologist might be able to recognise that. We just have the drone up today, by the way. Senior Constable Jared Mildenhall from the New South Wales Police Film and Television Unit is our drone pilot today. So at the Minor Beach, I tracked the drone um, up the canal way and I also tracked it along the beach and it seemed fairly clean. A brighter day you could probably see under the water a little bit more. After covering the beach, we went round to Brisbane Water and the channel where the dredging took place. Then we went around to Brisbane Water um, and I was tracking along the channel there. And you can see under the surface there are quite a lot of dark patches. You can see where the channel is. It's yeah. fairly clean. If there's persuasive evidence of more remains in the Etalong Channel, divers from the Marine Area Command are prepared to search the waterway. But from what we saw today, that seems a distant possibility. The dark soils we needed were not to be found in the estuary. Sergeant Donna Bruce from the Police Film and TV Unit ran the drone operation and she's not convinced either. I don't think the bone will have come from the canal. I made sure I was looking over Jared's shoulder when he did the overheads for that. And it's very yellow and the colour of the water is sort of that orange colour, you know, like mm. you normally get just from the eucalypts and that sort of thing. The, the tannin staining. Yeah, mm. yeah. So when I was looking at it, I thought, yeah, I'm discounting that. This is the area, the Etalong Channel, that was dredged. The problem for us is the Central Coast Council has not responded to requests for information at this time. So we're relying on public records. There was three or four different moments. There was an emergency program, then a later one, and then a later one, and, they, and in each case, that sand went from there onto Ocean Beach and Yamada Beach. And that's their own records that tells us that. So, I mean, you think, how else would it get there unless someone put mm. it there? So I think that, to me, you know, seems to be the most logical. 
So it's definitely in the right time zone. And I think also you had that thing with the beach there where over seven years the sand builds up anyway. And then big storms come, which obviously happened during 2020, mm-hmm. devastates that and exposes the stratigraphy, which you looked at back in the day. But you could see there was enough of the beach been carved away at that time, mm-hmm. but you could actually see the yeah. some seams of black. Yeah, when you look at it the, the, at the back of the beach there where the dunes are, you can actually see the layers in there. And there are a couple of black layers through there. You can see it quite clearly. Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, you think, well, possibly it could have just been dropped on the beach. Literally, someone's coming and gone, plop. Who knows, from somewhere else, far mm-hmm. afield. But I guess what you've been doing, though, is going through all the National Missing Persons records, and you've got a very wide set of parameters now. So I know our federal system has its drawbacks, but you're pretty confident that you can cover all the missing persons reports that fit your parameters. Um, I, w- I wouldn't say 100% confident. There's a lot of ambiguity with entry of missing persons on our policing systems, and I imagine that's going to be the same for every state as well. Like a bone may be recovered, so the system considers the entire human has been recovered. There's that initial ambiguity that we have on our system. Um, but you know, from what we've put together, I mean, there's a lot of names on there that we'll be having a look at. To some with recovered DNA and some with not. Yeah, so mm. quite a few on there where there's no DNA on our system or on the DNA database, so that makes it harder again. Yeah, going off what we've been told is that the bone belongs to someone who was approximately 15 years old when they died. I'm just finding it extraordinary that we've probably got a 15-year-old boy that mm. is missing, dead, murdered, something or other. Yep yet no one seems to have reported this person. Yeah, that's right. Because I've gone through the missing persons database myself mm-hmm. because it is publicly available information. And I've come up with three names, but even though of all the three names, the only one I can get a match to that is even remotely close is a boy from Bathurst. I think his kid needs a name. I'm going to go for Will Be Found. As we prepared to launch part one, we hadn't made much progress beyond our initial hunches on our mysterious teenage victim, if he is indeed a victim at all. So everything is under review. I'm also meeting our forensic odontologist, Dr Phil Kendall, who first suggested the boy may be Indigenous, partly because of the density of the bone he observed in his X-rays. He's having some second thoughts now. He still sees indigenous traits in the morphology, but he thinks there could be another reason for the density. That's obviously uh, taken up some sort of mineral or whatever. Oh, you think so? Okay. And that actually affects the density, does it? Bear in mind, this is a a 15-year-old. The bone shouldn't look like that. As you say, it could either be an indigenous marker or an indicator of... I think it's got more to do with the dark stone. Right. Because that's almost certainly a radio-opaque thing. What Phil's saying is the X-ray can't see through whatever substance has permeated the surface of the jaw. The snowstorm he sees around the roots of the teeth is not dense bone after all. I'm still holding to my belief that this jawbone has come to Yamina Beach through the Etalong Channel from Brisbane Water. That's based on the dark stain. However, our drone flight over the scene and a walk along the beach have dented my confidence. So that's the only lead we've got so far. So otherwise it's come from the moon, I think. If we, if we had a geologist, he might say, aha, that would be, <laughs> yes, that'll be there. 
I contacted a senior geomorphologist, Dr Peter Mitchell, on the advice of Penny McArdle. Based on the photographs I sent him, Dr Mitchell is confident the substance is iron and manganese, typically found in rivers and estuaries, in coastal swamps and marshes. It's thick and sticky black river mud, and there's none of it to be seen in the golden waters of the Etalong Channel. At all steps on this path, Gosford detectives work with investigators and analysts from the Missing Persons Registry. The manager of the registry is Detective Inspector Glenn Brown, a homicide veteran who oversaw the creation of this unit. He's come up from Sydney today for this podcast, which is now written into the standard operating procedures of the registry as a means of gathering information. Well, Glenn, welcome to your minor beach, mate. Thank you, mate. Well, I think everything's being done that can be done in this case because it's such a mysterious case. And the scientists have concluded that where the jawbone was found was not where the main part of this story took place that it's been buried somewhere for a long period of time, hence the black bone. And so it's really a jigsaw puzzle at this moment. And how do you, how do you as an investigator, approach this when you, you don't know the source, you don't know the person, you, there's a lot of unknowns. What, what's the mindset? Well, I think the most important thing is to keep a very open mind. We don't know. It's not until you explore every avenue available to you that you can sometimes come up with an answer. So the key to it is to keep going, be tenacious and keep a very open mind. Yeah, that's right. And the the thing here, of course, is like when you look, you think, okay, let's just look for the dark soil. Well, there ain't none. Hmm. You know, you go, you got to go miles to find anything that's like that. And the only thing that we can, that has come up so far, um, is the fact that a lot of sand was taken from around the corner and put on this beach. So um, that's a possible lead. Exactly. Uh, It takes very dedicated police work by a team of people generally to discover all those things, to discover what may have played some part in, in that mystery. For mine, the key thing is 14, 15-year-old boy who's gone missing, deceased, uh, no-one's reported him. How often have you seen that? Yeah, well, that's quite rare these days. I imagine it was something that may have happened more regularly historically, but um, it is incredibly unusual these days. Because one angle that Rodney Debrara is going on is looking at the paperwork, you know, of all these various cases from the past and, and how they were classified, where bodies were recovered either partially or fully, and how they were actually the detail of that. He's keeping an open mind, saying, well, this could be a paper chase. We could have already found this boy some time ago, and that now we have to find him in the paperwork again. Well, it is a a very good point that um, we don't always find um, deceased people whole. We may find part of a body sometimes, and historically we may not have recorded that incredibly well, um, exactly what was found and what was still outstanding. It's very much what we do these days. We uh, make sure that we keep very accurate records of those things so that we can um, resolve some of these mysteries. Yeah, because this is just one of a number of outstanding human remains yet to be identified. Uh, Yeah, we still have around 440 unidentified human remains cases in New South Wales. We don't necessarily have um, 440 unidentified human bodies. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of them historically were buried um, in destitute graves, so we don't physically have those human remains to do any scientific work with, but we do have a number of... um, well, we have the DNA profiles of quite a number of our unidentified human remains, sorry. Yeah, but you know where they are. If you had to get them, you could retrieve them. No, unfortunately, it's not so easy. Um, when people were buried in destitute graves many years ago, Adam, um, the recording of exactly where they were buried wasn't that accurate. Um, 
we have a rough idea, but that does create for us all sorts of difficulties. Mm, mm. So each case you're doing at the moment is contributing to the evolution of, of a whole new approach to missing persons and human remains. Absolutely. We, um, over the past couple of years, we've reviewed everything we do in New South Wales when it comes to missing persons, unidentified bodies and human remains investigations. And we put totally new systems in place to try and make these jobs um, a little easier for investigators in the field. Mm. One aspect of this case was when the bone was found, the member of the public picked it up straight away. Yep. Not a good thing to do? Better well, to leave things? Absolutely. Um, ideally, it would be left in situ and police should be called and we will come down and manage it from there. But there are circumstances where it might be appropriate. Um, we've certainly seen similar situations in the past where uh, a bone has been found on a beach and it's about to be consumed by the waves. So in circumstances like that, if you call police and they can't immediately get there, it might be appropriate to do that. Um, we're certainly not critical of the person who who uh, located this bone and handed it in, into police, but ideally um, the right thing to do would be to call the police and we will come down. Forensic dentist Phil Kendall has travelled from Newcastle for today's recording. He's not paid to be here, but he's taken a passionate interest in this jawbone. Working with New South Wales Police, Phil's dealt mostly with substantially whole corpses. Doing my job, you really appreciate the police because they get there first. They're the ones that actually discover the body with all the maggots and all the rest of it. I'll never be cranky with the police again having done what I've done. Yeah. Glenn's getting a few flashbacks, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I spent 14 years on the side squad. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. You do get to see some gruesome things. The, the very worst are car accidents uh, at speed yeah. because uh, and with incineration. And then there's plane crashes. And um, helicopter crashes in their league of their own. Working from just one bone and a few teeth imposes limitations. I guess the old-fashioned detection methods here of looking at the evidence, looking at the physiology, extrapolating a few theories is so key. I mean, you can call them assumptions or guesses, but that's how leads begin, isn't it, in your experience? Definitely. There are still some great clues to work on with this case, so it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Mm, mm. Yeah. Where do you think it's going, Phil? Oh, I think we're gradually getting there, bit by bit. Yeah. Can we go a bit faster, do you think? <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> the first episode of the podcast was released on December 13, 2021. The New South Wales Police Force and Listener engaged a social media audience of more than 2 million people with video trailers and links to the podcast. Feedback from that episode was going to be crucial to our prospects for success. I didn't have to wait long for it. The next day I received a Facebook message from a man named Brett White as follows. Hi Adam, not sure if this is of any help, but I looked after the beaches for council for the last 15 years where that jawbone was found. And I moved a lot of sand in that time from the low tide mark up into the dunes with machinery. Not sure if this may help. Two days later, I'm back at Umina to meet Brett. For months, we waited for council to respond to our inquiries, seeking someone to give us information on the beachworks. And here he is, walking up to me at the Umina Surf Club. He worked for the Central Coast Council for 15 years and knows this beach like the back of his hand. Right, so Brett, very interesting to meet you, mate. And, um, interesting to meet I you. I think this is very, very significant. Thank you for coming forward. So how did you first hear? Um, I saw the um, ad for the podcast on Facebook. 
and I saw the jawbone and I went, oh, I wonder if that's your miner. So that's why I contacted yeah. you. You'd been around here at that time in June last year. Yep. What was your memory of the day? It was just a normal day. I normally inspect all the beaches at least once or twice a week. Come down here and I saw the tent up with all the police and um, I just wandered down to see what was going on and basically told that there was an investigation and could I please leave the area? So I did. Um, and then obviously gossip got in, said that they found a jawbone. Because your memory is that you were doing some work at that end of the beach the week before. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure we were doing some sand scraping because I thought to myself, oh, when I walked down there and the constable told me there was something going on, I watched the policeman rake the beach with a garden rake. And I thought, well, you're not going to find anything there because we'd done some scraping there the week before. And how much have you had you scraped? Oh, not much. We've just done a little bit of... Because it was winter, that tends to be the time that we get a lot of our maintenance stuff done. So we just scraped some sand up and put it at the bottom of the scarp. So we may well have uncovered a bit of sand off the top of it and that's why it was found, or we may well have pushed it to a place that it was found. So Yeah, because when you, you've got a tractor with a blade... Buc- a bucket on the front, bucket, a, a yeah. three-in-one bucket, and it just sits on top of the sand and then it just moves up the beach and the profile of the beach then fills the bucket up with sand. So we're actually not digging, it's just the sand doing the work. And then once the bucket is full, we then just push it forward and tip it at the bottom of the scarp to protect the scarp so that there's no more erosion. So basically we're moving a cubic metre of sand each time. Right. And that's how it was kind of found, sort of half sticking out of the sand. Mm. We obviously had the day before there was quite a lot of rain in the area as well. Yep. So the combination of the two, it, it doesn't appear likely that it was washed up, was more revealed. Yes, yeah. Or washed up in the big... Well, that's right, washed up first and then yeah. revealed. And then revealed, yeah. 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 Brett believes the catalyst to this event was a catastrophic flood in March 2012. Yeah. So let's just run through that event again. So 2012, what were you doing? So 2012, the local two surf clubs had just won the rights to host the New South Wales state surf titles for the next four years. So 2012 was the first year that we had it. And the manager at that time said, basically, whatever they want, let's do it. We want to put on a good show here. We want to promote Gosford. So we'd spent two weeks leading up to the event, you know, fluffing the beach up, raking, getting rid of the rubbish, carting their their fences down and everything like that. And the beach looked pristine on the Thursday afternoon. The surf carnival at Yamina was due to begin on March the 9th, 2012. However, fate had already intervened. Heavy rain had begun falling across the state in late February. Within a few days in March, 75% of the state was in flood. Torrential rains lashed Sydney and the city's reservoir, Warragamba Dam, hit full capacity and began spilling on the night of March 3rd, sending a vast quantity of water surging towards the sea. The Hawkesbury Nepean system, fed by the Gross and Colo rivers, rose to more than 10 metres. This system empties into the ocean just south of Yamina Beach. Five days after Warragamba Dam spilled, the floodwater, sweeping all before it, had hit the central coast. And then I got a phone call, I think it was three o'clock in the morning, on Friday morning, can you get your crew down here, we're in trouble, and everything was washed away. And then... Um, what was the scene confronting you? 
Well, there was no beach. There were thousands of people here because they'd all turned up for this surf carnival to start at 8 o'clock on a Friday morning. People running everywhere and then large surf and then we started to see the signs of debris and then over the next three or four days, the debris washed up and the beach was unusable. The heavy flow of debris onto Central Coast beaches continued for all of March. According to Brett White, 90% of it came from the south via the Hawkesbury River and the rest from a network of swollen creeks that empty into Brisbane water to the north. Brett White's team was busy for months after that cleaning up. We're not talking small bits of things, are we? No, no, we're talking massive big trees, 5, 10, 15 metres long. We actually had to get another tractor down to help us. There was that amount of debris on the beach. And then we pushed all the stuff up. There was that much stuff. We pushed it in piles. Some of it we pushed to the back of the dune. And then over the preceding next three to six months, it took us that long to basically remove the stuff. Any of the natural stuff we tended to leave, so it was a, yeah, a, a long process. There was massive matted rafts of debris. Mm. Yeah, I've never seen that amount of debris since or before. It was unbelievable. I can see a whole new scenario unfolding as Brett speaks. The resting place of our unknown individual is far away from this beach. In March 2012, it gets churned up by floodwaters and carried with the debris all the way here. Yeah, because bones don't float, but the volume of debris could have possibly created like a raft effect. Yeah, there was one area that was about 100 metres by about 150 metres of, of wire fencing with fence posts and turf and just every piece of debris you could possibly think all matted together and that was floating just offshore um, and that's what it was coming yeah, in. Yeah, so something that could have picked up anything in its path yep. as it's washing down through yep. shallower water. Yep, for In sure. the river, for instance. Yep. Well, you know, we got a we got an auto bin from Wollindilly Shire, which is south of Wollongong. I think it's nearly three hours' drive yeah. or something. Yeah. And then yeah, that proceeds for the next, you know, that basically the next three weeks after that storm event, it slowly starts to get less and less. But at every, you clean the beach to the point where you can walk on it, and then the next high tide, it's covered again. And the beach we see now is not the beach that confronted you in 2012. Um, the beach was probably 50 to 75 metres wider. There was a lot more sand on the beach. It wasn't so much of a slope. But, yeah, just from 2010 on, the coastal erosion has started to have its effect on the beach. But 2012 was the real big one. Yeah. So the position where the bone was found, which was roughly, I guess, halfway to the water as the beach is today, what point would that have been in 2012? Well, the dune scarp would have been a lot closer to it and the waterline would have been, you know, 15, 20 metres further out. Yep. Um, so it's possible that that point is where you've pushed up a whole bunch of debris and sand and everything, yep. and that's where it's remained yep. for at least eight years. Yep, we could have well pushed it up, yeah. Yeah, so mm-hmm. if you were the police coming back here, where would you be looking, Brett? Well, obviously in the area that they um, found the bone, but what I'd be looking for is the piles of the debris of trees and the flotsam jetsam that's left because that's the stuff that we pushed up to the back of the dune. So if you push it up to the scarp, the next high tide washes it away. So you've wasted all that time. So we would push it up onto that. That would be the place that I would look. If someone said to me, where would you look? And that may not necessarily be exactly where the bone was found. I'd look in the dune for the piles. You can sometimes tell by the vegetation it'll rise because the vegetation's actually grown up over the pile of debris. Um, But yeah, that's where I would look. This local knowledge is absolutely vital. Brett can read the lumps and bumps of Yamona Beach 
telling a story of the last 20 years of this coastline and the weather that shaped it. We've been waiting for the Central Coast Council to furnish that information. It turns out the council no longer has it. I retired in February and I think there's only one person left on Central Coast in my old section that was Gosford. Yeah, right. So, you know, if you went there now and asked them, nobody would know. Yeah. If you know what I mean, there's nobody there from that era, so... This almost biblical flood in 2012 has virtually obliterated my dredging theory, even before Brett takes me over to the Etalong Channel. So we're here now at Etalong Beach, around the corner from Ocean Beach and Yamana, and you're about to explode my dredging theory, I, I believe. Brett, yeah. <laughs> he tells me none of the sand dredged came anywhere near where the jawbone was found. The cutter would cut the sand and then just pump it into the channel on the outgoing tied so we'll right. take it away. So just spreading it out yeah. into the... And then the next dredging, which is a sandpiper one yes. in 2019, that was basically put on Edelon Point where them rocks are and yes. then they carted it down the beach for us and then... A floating line. Yeah, floating line to there and then basically they just got a couple of D9s in and just pushed it down towards Ocean Beach Surf Club. Yeah, and as I understand it, they only got as far as Ocean Beach Surf Club and their walkway was their marker. That's correct, so where the lifeguard tower is. Yep. Right, That's so... Right. so even in big storm conditions, how far can a bone move in sand? I mean, you know that how that beach works. Look, I'd be very surprised if it had moved very far at all. There's no way in the world I could see that the jawbone would be put from there down to where it ended up. No, no, because no, it's a distance of, I don't know, seven, 800 metres. Yeah. You know, they've got their floating line. It's There's a reasonable diameter in the pipe, you know. It was actually wider than our jawbone, which is about 10 centimetres but you got some bad news on that one too, don't you? Yeah, because um, we actually moved some of the sand south of that walkway just on the other side to even up the profile of the beach and all the shells and everything were smashed through the grate. So anything that had any size to it was smashed to pieces. You know, it was covered in shells. So there's no way in the world that uh, that would have gone through the pipe. It would have been smashed to pieces. But I guess the other thing is that the, the sand that they're pumping, and when I was watching the video of the dredge yep. coming out all grey and black, looks yep. all lovely close to the bone colour, but what happens when it dries? It's this colour. That's right. It. That's it there. Nice and yellow. But here's, there's the yellow shell. with a little bit of... There's the shell that gets pulverised through the dredge. And that's gone through the dredge, yeah. yeah okay, you can see that. Is. And that's, that's about what about a, a, a centimetre across. Yep. And it's been broken. Yep. Damn it. Okay, so I'll, I'll concede that it was unlikely that the dredge took it around the corner, but it doesn't mean that still wasn't the path. No. Because what was happening through here in 2012, the debris, this was part of the debris path. This is a kind of moment of the good news and the bad news, where I guess we were hoping that it would be a localised event. And, um, you know, you've given us a great knowledge of, of how this system operates and the likelihood of it being there. But now you've actually, you've made us pull back on the map Half of New South Wales is a possible site now, isn't it, really? Mm. Look at the, the length of the Hawkesbury, Hawkesbury and, River, yeah. and the tributaries. Any, could be anywhere along there. That's a massive river. Brett White's flood scenario is daunting in terms of finding the origin of the jawbone, where it was buried. If it came from the Hawkesbury River to the south, it's no longer a local event. There's still a chance it came from the north through the local creek system that feeds Brisbane water. But given that 90% of debris came from the Hawkesbury, that's unlikely. At least Brett's information has yielded a possible new target area in the dunes behind the beach to search for other remains. Two weeks later, on a hot, blustery summer's afternoon, I'm back on Yumana Beach with Brett. He's on the surf patrol for the local beaches, and it's a busy day. Put the jet ski away, because the guy had been on it all morning and he was smashed. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we've got an incident for you. 
there's a boat sinking off Tonga Point with two people, so we sent the duck. Then we had a guy jump off the wharf and got a spinal. Detective Rod Debra has come down from Gosford to meet Brett. Brett White, Detective Senior Constable Rodney Debra. Brett, Hello, how are you doing, mate? I'm good. Yourself? Brett. Good, mate. Good. good. So this is about the spot, uh, isn't it? Probably just alongside that tent, just on the other side of it. Would have been about the spot. Because you went into these yeah, the dunes, didn't you? Yeah, ground searched in there. Um, had that uh, ground radar sort of along the front of the scarp where it was and tried to get, like, do a little bit on the top. Of course, with all the vegetation there, it's not, not yeah. highly effective. But, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the bush care guys go in and pluck out the weeds, but yeah. no major work, no. Yeah, right. Endangered coastal species, that's it. And that being the case too, is probably why I never got permission to clear any of that vegetation up there. Alright, so we've got the Horsby River in contention as well now too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All, Thanks, all, of, all of its tributaries. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to give you more work. But I guess the only problem with the idea of it being 2012 is you've got eight or ten years in the sand. Yeah. And I wonder what impact that's going to have. You know, if you could still have that dark, dark... It should bleach, but... Um... Like Penny was saying, if it's in that dark sort of layer, yeah. if there was a layer of that, it yeah. Would, well, it would if, if it's, what I would think, Possibly. having seen so much of the beach erosion, if there was any more bones in that area, they would have been exposed and found. So, was it in this area? I would say probably about this area. Probably, I had a guess, I'd say right about where that ridge is. Okay, so there, the reason I ask that is this there. is the area that moves the most. Mm. The yeah, wet right. sands tends to stay wet, and it's that between the kind of the the low moon high tide and the high moon high ah. tide. This is the area that moves. Like you'll come back tomorrow and that ridge will probably be off and it'll be all flat. Yeah. And that could be one of the reasons why it tends to move so much. It's got so much more foot traffic on it. There you go. Well, enjoy the rest of the day, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Right, good on you, Brett. Thanks again, mate. Good. After meeting Brett, Rod is looking at the dunes with renewed interest. This area was searched in June 2020, but only on the surface and going deeper in this sensitive coastal ecosystem won't be easy. And you can't dig in there, I didn't realise that. No, you can't go in there at all, that way. Jeez. Won't, that won't give permission for that. It, yeah, no, and where I'll, would you start anyway? But I, you put the dogs in through here, didn't you? The cadaver dogs? Yeah, cadaver dog went through. Um, they line searched through here and everything. They just, you know, gave it the trample for, to have a look around, but... Um, yeah, but it wouldn't be on the surface anyway, so... No. And to be able to dig in there, I'd have to get some sort of coronial order. Right. But um, that's obviously not going to be granted unless you know, some specific sort of information. Right. So, yeah. Like, I buried the body in there and... X marks the spot. <laughs> yeah. Well, you never know. Brett White's flood theory will send analysts from the Missing Persons Registry into the records from 2012, looking for reports and incidents that might throw up fresh names. This investigation is statewide now. In the meantime, Rod Debras weighing up what further scientific testing may be required to establish an age for the bone. Yeah, Penny was quite keen on the idea of radiocarbon dating. And so, what's transpired there? Uh, what's transpired there from the from the podcast? Uh, someone's contacted us about um, being able to do the carbon dating. Apparently, down at the Lucas Heights facility. Right. And that's one of the things too, um, each sort of step of examination, each sort of different physical examination or scientific examination um, sort of deteriorates your exhibit a bit more. Yes. Sort of thing, so yeah, you just sort of got to pick and choose which ones you do it. Right. Time rather than willy-nilly everything. Yeah, I think that's right. It's having the respect for the victim, isn't it, in mm. a way, and the family and what they eventually might get to bury and all these sorts of sensitive issues. 
Yeah, well, especially if you look at it that way too. I mean, you want to say, well, we had an intact jaw bone now, we've just got a pile of dust because we've done all this to it when, you know, maybe we could have stopped a few steps earlier. Than well, I think, I think that's right. And I think that's where the attempts to identify through the dental and through the administrative line and so forth is, you know, before you go all in on destructive scientific processes, mm. it's worth. So we should probably in a couple of weeks get the next phenotyping results. Hopefully I'm told. So. Hopefully yeah. So. And little Will's eyes and hair colour will be known. <laughs> if it comes up, William, mate, I'm just I'm just going to give up you, and become a clairvoyant. You, know? you agree? I wonder if you had any clairvoyants get in touch? No. Look at this. Ah, no. They must be having the summer off. <laughs> In the next part of Lost at Sea, The Black Bone, forensic investigators supply crucial dating and DNA information, and Rodney DeBra contemplates a new search of the dunes. If you know anything that could assist police in identifying our lost boy, I urge you to make contact with Crime Stoppers on 1800 000 or make a visit to your local police station. All contacts will be kept confidential. State Crime Command is produced in collaboration with the New South Wales Police Force and Real Crime Australia. Written and produced by Adam Shan. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Original music and mixing by Matt Nikolic. Associate producer, Matt Dwyer. Additional editing by Kelly Falston. New South Wales Police producer, Sergeant Donna Bruce. Digital producers, Jack Shand and Oscar Gordon. Research by Nolly Way Shand. Listener.